Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, May 17th, 2021. On the show today, we know more about how Disney's theme parks are going to look post-COVID, plus other news and listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim talks about Zorro. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that if you have more than one lasagna and you put them on top of each other, you have one lasagna. He's not sure whether this is the identity property or the reciprocal property of lasagnas, but it seems to indicate that along with whole numbers, real numbers, and rational and irrational numbers, there's a class of numbers called the lasagna numbers with strange mathematical properties. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I take lasagna very seriously. I I understand, yeah. I have an an Italian sister-in-law who... Uh, let me in on the family secret, the recipe for no, the, 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 the really? Stefanazzi family lasagna. Now, mind you, when I joined the military, I swore less of an oath than I did <laughs> to keep this lasagna I mean, secret. The worst they can do is throw you in Leavenworth, right? <laughs> this, on the other hand, if I re- reveal too much here, there could be some issues involved. But for those of you who do lasagna at home... The first two steps are crucial. You have to put a light coat of olive oil on the bottom of the pan, and then the very first level of sauce, which Mm -hmm. you put immediately on top of the olive oil, should be a meat sauce. Really? You need that fat content in the meat sauce. Oh, plus the oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it gets crispy. And also that you can eventually get the lasagna out of the pan because the version I was taught by my sister-in-law literally is referred to as building permit lasagna. (laughs) At the end, this thing is so heavy, you actually have to sign a waiver that says you agree not to go swimming for the next 48 hours. Because otherwise, you just go straight to the bottom. (laughs) Maybe that's where the rule came from. No swimming after uh, directly after eating. It's, it's It's from Italians. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Polaris Keith, Hannah Broughton, Neil Dolstad, DVC Nut, and Florida Journey. And longtime subscribers, Jonathan Mayfield, Andrew Liker, Puma Cregan, and Missy320. Jim, while on a holiday, these folks tasted the delicious street food made by a gentle, giant, fur-covered Nepalese shepherd and convinced him to open a restaurant in Disney's Animal Kingdom. And that's how we got Yak and Yeti. True story. <laughs> wow. Other than the, the residual <laughs> fur content, very tasty, but maybe get you to wear a hat and, and a shawl. It's a glandular condition, Jim. It's not his fault. There we go. All right, folks, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, Book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news here, the Disney earnings call, which happened on Thursday, a couple of things out of Bob Chapek's statements, and then the follow-up questions that he got. So the first thing, Jim, um, was Chapek pretty much implied there would be no masks in Walt Disney World this summer, right? He didn't say that straightforwardly. Very heavily implied it. Right. I think he said something like, uh, uh, it's, it's no fun wearing masks in 95 degrees in Florida, so a lot of people will be very happy this summer. Something like that. Mm. Yes. There we go. So we talked about capacity increases in the park, and he seemed to say it this way, that not only will we increase park capacity, we already have increased park capacity. And that was interesting because we think that happened at the Animal Kingdom on Saturday, May 8th, as a test of how the parks would function. And then the rest of the parks got a capacity increase on Tuesday, May 11th. And the reason I think this is prior to that, we're sort of like in that, in a, in a weird period where post Easter, but pre summer vacation, right? So the middle of May on a random weekday should not be that crowded. Right. And last week, for example, the parks 
if you look at the the wait times, um, the average posted wait time in the parks over uh, on any given day, as compared to the last thirty days, generally speaking, you know this time of year they're like twenty fifth out of 30, 28th out of thirty. You know, fairly low mm-hmm. in terms of averages. And then on Saturday, the Animal Kingdom did two things. One, it started with the previews for uh, f- uh, festivals of the Lion King. Preview oh, head, head was running. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. But, but the second thing is, is we think that the increased park capacity, and the reason for that is that the park's average posted wait time, which again was somewhere in the you know the low twenties on average, jumped to fifth highest over the last thirty days. Hmm. While the other parks were again like you know twenty fifth, twenty eighth, you know thirty, and so on. And then on Tuesday, May eleventh, all of the parks' hmm. average wait times jumped. And again, for that to happen on a random Tuesday. Hmm. In May um, is unusual, so I think that's when yep. when the park capacity increased. Okay, did we see that stick? Yeah, uh, it did. In fact, stick. So it was true the next day and the day after that too. So we'll we'll check for today as, as well. I didn't uh, I didn't run yesterday's numbers, but but I'll uh, I'll do that later on. Okay. The other interesting thing I th- uh, I think that um, that he mentioned was there was the, uh, he talked about these things uh, this thing called a loyalty program for mm-hmm. Disneyland. So here's the entire exchange. It came uh, started uh, with a question by Doug Mitchelson from Credit Suisse, who says one of the I think one of the core theses is that coming out of the pandemic, the potential that the parks at Disney are more profitable than pre-pandemic. And you talked about some of those drivers. One of them, perhaps, when the parks return to one hundred percent of capacity, is that capacity different than it was pre-pandemic? Is it bigger? Are you smarter on pricing? Are margins structurally higher? So one, I'm just curious if you agree with that thesis that the parks could end up being more profitable coming out of the pandemic than it was going in. And he goes on and talks about ESPN uh, after that. But uh, anyway, Chapek replied this. Okay, in terms of park and in terms of the relative profitability, as you know, we have, there's a lot of negative impacts, of course, with COVID. But one of the things that gave us a chance to do as we were forced to stop operation was to completely re-examine how we priced and programmed our tickets. And as you all know, we ended our current annual pass program in Disneyland. And that gives us a chance to sort of create a modern version of a park loyalty program, an affinity program that isn't necessarily governed by legacy. And as you know, the net contribution back to the company varies tremendously and was one of the levers that we used to grow yield over the past several years, depending on what type of ticketing structure or a particular guest came in. With the ability now for us to sort of completely reconsider how we go about our loyalty programs and our frequent visitor programs, we have the chance to make even more advancements, not only in terms of the guest experience and make sure that guests have tremendous experience, no matter what day of the year they come, whether it's a high demand day or a relatively low demand day, but also the ability to increase our per caps and our yields. And that means make more money. So here's the thing. So Jim, they, he specifically is not, we're not talking about annual passes anymore. We're talking about loyalty programs and frequent visitor programs. That's not an annual pass, is it? No, no. And I don't know if it was part of this exchange, but there was also, Chapek threw off something to the effect of, Talking about when it came to the annual pass holders, they weren't getting the sort of spending they wanted from them. Right. I think he said this on a, on the last earnings call that if you sort of rank everyone mm-hmm. from one to n, mm-hmm. all the different types of visitors, like the the you know the once in a lifetime visitors who are spending you know twelve thousand dollars on their mm-hmm. um, Grand Floridian stay, those are the those are the people who were the the most profitable, and the, at the bottom of it was annual pass holders. Mm-hmm. In a weird sort of way, Chapek is sort of zeroing in on that annual pass holder who knew to stop at McDonald's to get lunch before they went into the park, that they weren't spending $18, $19 for the chicken dinner at the Plaza Inn. Right. That's the thing going forward here, right? I just feel like there's 
a repositioning of the park now that that's going to be embrace the day guest and um that's going to be interesting going forward you know i was i was trying to think of analogies to this and the closest thing i could come up with is las vegas so depending on how much money you put into play or you spend at the restaurants or at the hotels or whatever, you get rewards points. And I think it's going to be something like that. Just yesterday, two hours or so ahead of the earnings call, Disneyland Forward had one of their virtual town meetings. And, and what's, what's Disneyland Forward? Disneyland Forward is the plan for the next 40 years for the Disneyland Resort. 40 years is a long time. It is. But at the same time, one of the things that they pointed out as they were starting the meeting yesterday was that there was the plan that the city of Anaheim and Orange County agreed to with the Disneyland Resort back in 1993. Now, if we jump forward 25 years at that point, the fact that we got Star Wars Galaxy's Edge in the upper northwest corner of Mm -hmm. Disneyland Park was actually the agreement they made back in 93 that allowed Disney to expand out into that section of the theme park. Holy cow. Previously back of house and 25 years in the making before we finally got that land. Now, to circle back to the whales idea, one of the things they talked about going forward is that Disneyland Resort is looking at trends in in travel and the way people vacation. And the thing that people seem to be embracing are these environments that have retail and attractions and dining. In fact, once again, they brought up the Fantasy Springs expansion that's being done for, for Tokyo Disney Seas. Mm-hmm. They brought up the fact that back in 1993, as part of this agreement, the Disneyland Resort got the rights, again, from the city of Anaheim and Orange County, to develop 6 million square feet of theme park in Anaheim. And to date, they've only done half of that. They've only done roughly 3 million square feet. Likewise, they got the right at the same time to create 5,000 hotel keys or or rooms. And same thing. They've only developed half of that at this point. So what they're talking about now is that, you know, and and again, they want to stress that this is a 40-year plan. And more to the point, we expect that it's going to take two years Go back and forth and, and talking with the city and in Orange County to and, and in the middle, there'll be plenty of opportunity for locals. Uh, I want to say there's three different separate periods of public commentary. But the idea is at the end of two years, they'll have a revised agreement that will allow them to develop different parts of the Disneyland Resort areas that had not been set aside for theme parks. Really? Yeah. One of the things they kept hammering on was that One version of this plan has both DCA and Disneyland Park expanding by a full third, but literally going over Disneyland Drive. Yeah, and that's one of the ones we saw, right? We saw that in the concept art. Yeah. They actually said as part of this presentation that they wished people wouldn't necessarily look too closely at the concept art. That people are doing a lot of sort of Zapruder film, you know, ooh, there's the (laughs) Black Panther attraction or there's, there's Tangled. And it's like... We haven't settled on an IP yet. Just don't put too much faith in the early concept art. These plans will change. And some of the aspects of this plan, just like Galaxy's Edge, could take 25 plus years to be realized. The big thing with uh, with a lot of that, too, is if you look at the depreciation schedule that Disney mm-hmm. has for mm-hmm. its major developments, those are typically 20 or 30 year depreciation cycles, which means that if they build something, mm-hmm. you're stuck with it for two or three decades. Oh, easy. Right. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I think Stitch's Grid Escape 
Mm-hmm. Disney knew it wasn't going to meet expectations literally mm-hmm. from the first six months mm-hmm. that it was uh, that was built. But they had to keep it on the books. They had to keep it running to depreciate right over that time. And that's why we get bad attractions that stick around for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see the same thing here. Disney's very cautious about the development of these things, not only because it takes an enormous amount of money, but it means that they can't do anything else oh, yeah. with that yeah. with that property for thirty years, twenty or thirty years. So they're you know that that's why they don't uh, they don't do these sorts of things very fast. That certainly makes sense. But again, it was a fascinating presentation. Yeah. I and, and what was interesting also, Anaheim local officials were talking about how they've got twenty seven hotels that by the end of May will be up and running, accepting guests in the area again and. Likewise, the Anaheim Convention Center is is trending in the right direction. In fact, I, I don't know if you saw that they've actually moved up the Star Wars convention from August to May of next year. Which oh, that's uh, good. That's a good sign. So yeah, that's a good sign. Excellent. Yep. All right, Jim. Let's do some uh, some listener questions. Uh, first of all, a lot of people. Uh, Mark Swayze was the first. Uh, sent in links to online articles about the history of Fess Parker's Frontier World. From our last episode, that was super informative. So thanks to everybody who sent that stuff in. I didn't realize, Jim, that it was covered that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't. It's a weird little what might have been and what actually became with uh, the Great America thing out in Santa Clara. Yeah, it was great. All right, here's a question from Becky, who says, uh, I have a trip booked for this July, and we're staying at the Dolphin. I've stayed there many times before and have always loved it for the location and Disney transportation. I was very disappointed to hear that they switched to Mir's shuttle buses. Could you please tell me if it would be better for us to walk over to the Yacht Club to catch their bus to get to the Magic Kingdom or Boardwalk rather than use Mir's? Also, would this be allowed? All right. So, uh, Becky, we sent some people over to time the buses at the Swan and the Dolphin this week. And those buses that are, again, run by Mir's seem to be running roughly every 30 minutes or so, give or take. And that seems to be a little bit slower than Disney's sort of every 20 minutes, give or take. But even then, your expected wait for a bus is around 15 minutes or half of what the, the cycle is. And so I'm not sure it's worth the walk over to the boardwalk or the yacht club because the walk will take 10 minutes. And that's most of the time for the next bus. So I would say it's a little slower, but I don't know that it's worth the walking unless you just missed a bus. So if you walk up to the bus stop and you see that uh, a bus is just leaving for the Magic Kingdom, you can be pretty sure that the next one's not going to be for 30 minutes. In that case, I would take my chances and walk over to the nearest Disney hotel and see what happens there. All right, Jim, here's a question from Beth in the Alps, who says, I'm a theme park fan living in France and listen to a lot of podcasts on the topic. The Disney dish is by far my favorite. Oh, thank you. And I'm amazed at the great information that you put out every week. The history is always fascinating and the park news top notch, mostly. <laughs> I I think mostly must be a French idiom because- It's such a gentle stiletto. Like- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You guys are great for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It's an idiomatic thing. It's probably there a Google go. Translate screen it up. Okay, there uh, we go. I just have one tiny correction for episode 321. The Velocicoaster is not the first attraction to feature a two-sided guest locker configuration. Europa Park in Rust, Germany opened their Arthur and the Invisibles coaster in 2014. It features just such a setup, keeping the incoming and outgoing guests separated by having back and front doors on the lockers. Thought you would like to know. So that is fabulous. Also, quite a few people sent this in. Also, thanks to Dr. Peter Luce in Germany. Beth helpfully included a wheel of cheese with her question. So that's the one we read on the air. Hey, make with mine part of the cheese. (laughs) All right. There's a question from Instagram. He says, hi, Lynn and Jim. I'm wondering if you've seen the Disney cruises that are being advertised for UK residents. 
And if you thought it was worth the 1600 pounds plus for two nights, I'm very tempted, but giving the UK weather, I'm not sure the swimming pool was, will be as much of a draw as it should be. And I'm wondering what else you can do or get for that money. Have they ever done this before? Or is it because the cruise ships are stranded in the UK because of COVID? Thanks for any tips. So let me just say, I absolutely uh, understand the, the weather concern. I once was in Alton Towers in June, which Jim, June is summer, right? In theory. I was in Alton Towers in June, which is sort of like the Midlands of, of the UK. So a couple hours north of, of London. And it was June. Mm-hmm. And then, so I packed short sleeves. Mm-hmm. And Jim, I froze. Like I literally huddled <laughs> with humanity. People I didn't know. In, in the forests of, of, the, of, the, of the British Midlands because it was that cold. I think it was like 40 degrees. And the next week it was like, it was like 85. What, what, what are we doing here? That reminds me of one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes. That if the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Yeah. So Anyway, so this, uh, so this cruise is 1,600 pounds. So mm-hmm. 1,600 quid is about $2,250 for a two-night cruise. Or $1,125 per night, <laughs> roughly, roughly $575 or so per person per night. That seems expensive. Uh, so I checked the DCL website uh, and it looks for many of these sailings. Um, the cheaper inside staterooms are already sold out. So you can actually get a two night cruise with an inside cabin that starts at around $911 US. But for the other two night or three night cruises where the cheaper cabins are already sold out, you're looking at, yeah, like $1,600 to $1,700 just to get on the ship. And again, that's double occupancy, which is which is that. So that's that's a lot of money. It is. It is. And, and I get it. We've all been locked indoors for 14, oh, yeah. 15 months. But it's just sort of like, that sounds like an awful lot of money to make up at the buffet. Yeah. I don't know that you can eat that many crab legs or shrimp. I mean, you could try. That's true. There's complimentary champagne, I think, on the Sail Away cruise or on the Sail Away party. But again, you can't drink that much of it. So, yeah, that seems like a lot. Um, what I would do is if one of those three-night staycations still is available for 1700 US dollars, which is, it was about 1,000 pounds-ish, yeah. give or take, 1100 mm-hmm. I mean, that's cheaper. I would, mm-hmm. I would try that. The other thing I looked at, Jim, was um, so pricing has been leaked for the uh, first couple sailings of the Disney Wish, the new ship. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at uh, some of the longer cruises, like the the more than four night cruises, and the prices there. I had to do the math twice mm-hmm. to make sure that I was doing it right. So, an inside cabin on the Wish and one of its inaugural longer cruises, an inside cabin with no windows, mm-hmm. averaged eight hundred and eighty dollars per person per night uh. on an in, for an inside stateroom. I was I was flat, it was almost it was around six thousand dollars for the cruise. I was like, mm-hmm. what? Who's, how, <laughs> what? I, like, is money even real at that point? I don't understand. Do we see prices radically go down after the inaugural cruises? Or? Well, it's funny because I, I only looked for a certain number of days out, but then I looked on the Wonder, mm-hmm. like, which is the you know oldest ship, I think, in the fleet, mm-hmm. and uh, to see what that is. And same number of days, you know, going out of uh, Port Canaveral instead of, I think it was, it was eight. It was around eight something a night for the wish. Mm. And the wonder was $600 per person per night, less expensive, mm. which tells you the premium that Disney's able to get for the people who want to be on, you know, among the first uh, on the, on the new ship. And it's, it's okay. new itineraries. Yeah. It's crazy. 
boy, those are pretty steep bragging rights. But. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. which is not to say I'm not going to book one, you know, <laughs> I just going to find the <laughs> cheapest one I can do. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll be following in the robot. Throw me some shrimp and crab legs. Okay? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm just going to dump these overboard. Yeah. Just hold on. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the story of how characters like Zorro ended up in the Disney theme parks. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. On the last show, we talked about uh, how Fess Parker had taken everything he had learned while doing Davy Crockett and tried to open up a theme park, which eventually didn't work out, but still was still friends with Disney and so on. Then what happened? Fest learned a lot at Walt Disney and applied that going forward You know, with Dana Boone. I mean, he, would, he, for example, learned from the mistakes that Walt had made about the merchandising and made sure that 20th Century Fox, the company that produced the Daniel Boone show, had it all set up when the show launched in 64. Likewise, bringing Buzz Price's company in to do the land search for Frontier World and yep. all that. But Walt learned a lot of these lessons the hard way. And it involved a lot of bumping heads with the executives at ABC. And that was largely because of what had happened with Davy Crockett. And you have this monstrous hit. Right out of the box. So the executive ABC was like, well, we'd like another Davy Crockett-sized hit every season of the show. And, and Walt was like, guys, I've been doing this. I've been working in entertainment for 30 years at this point. And I've had exactly three of those happen. <laughs> there was when Steamboat Willie came out in November of 28 and was lucky enough to be the, the first cartoon short with synchronized sound and, you know, became a sensation. Then there was December of 37, where he was lucky enough to do the first full-length Technicolor animated feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and then Lightning in, in a Bottle for the third time. Yeah. March of uh, 1950, Cinderella comes out and becomes the monstrous hit that basically saves the company and makes it possible to make Disneyland. And he's like, lightning can strike. I mean, that's the thing with Davy Crockett. It was the yeah. right show at the right time. But We'd like you to manufacture some kismet, please. Yes. <laughs> but it's like it's ABC, you know, it's like, that's nice. And we definitely hear what you're saying, Walt, but we still want another Davy Crockett. And as soon as possible, by the way, because ABC is one third owner of Disneyland Inc. at this point. Right. Walt really has no choice. He has to keep these executives happy because they can slow down expansion. They can hinder his plans. This is why we got those two additional Davy Crockett episodes of the Davy Crockett's Killboat Race and the Davy Crockett and the River Pirates for season two of the Disneyland show. But again, ABC still sees still like, that's nice, but two Davy Crockett's isn't going to do it. And so it's a board meeting at ABC. And Walt has been scheduled to come in and talk to the board. And the door flies open. And here's Walt Disney in a cowboy hat. And he's got a set of holsters on it. He pulls out two cat pistols and starts shooting them in the air. And he's like, you want Davy Crockett like heroes? Okay, we're going to have Davy <laughs> Crockett like heroes. The next three years of the Disneyland TV show, we got... The saga of Andy Burnett. We got Nine Lives of El Fago Baca. We got. Well, let me pause here and say the Nine Lives of El Fago Baca sounds like one of the Lord of the Rings trilogies. 
It's got Robert Loggia in it, by the way, he, who does a great job. But uh, we've got uh, Texas John Slaughter, we've got Swamp Fox, and we've talked on the last show about the Daniel Boone show. But I'm sorry. If I ever go to stripping in Gainesville, Swamp Fox is going to be my stage name. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, you were saying. (laughs) Having learned a tough lesson from Davy Crockett, first season of the Disney show, only three episodes. So Walt literally, it's like, okay, let's make sure we have lots of stuff in the hopper. So Daniel Moon had four episodes. Saga of Andy Bennett had six episodes. Swamp Fox had eight episodes. Nine Lives of Ophago Baca, what a surprise, nine episodes with Texas John Slaughter, 17 episodes. Okay, so that's 44 TV shows. And so we're the... Were the people at ABC happy with this? No, because no. none of, <laughs> no, none of them not. were Davy no. Crockett. This is frustrating Walt because what's happening is that each year he's losing less and less of the, the Disneyland show to remember how, you know, if you watch the opening credits of Disney, uh, Disneyland TV show, some shows are going to be set in Fantasyland, some shows are going to be set in Adventureland. Right. Some were, and now he's, now he's dedicated 44 of them to Frontierland. Yeah, it got so frustrating to Walt that for the 58, 59 season of the show, he actually changed the name of the Disneyland TV show to Walt Disney Presents because it's like, okay, we're doing mostly Westerns. And the ABC executives are just as frustrated with Walt. In fact, you have to chase down this book. It's Leonard Goldenson, the founder and first president of the American Broadcasting Company. And this is what he has to say about Walt Disney and his brother Roy. His memoir was published in 1991. It's called Beating the Odds, the Untold Story Behind the Rise of ABC, the Stars, Struggles, and Egos that Transformed Network Television by the Man Who Made It Happen. Goldenson looks back at the time when he works directly with Walt. This is because of that $5 million that they made available through, you know, at a really crucial time for the construction of Disneyland. Right. So ABC is one third owner of Disneyland Inc. at this point. And so Goldenson at one point gets asked, well, what was it like to, to work with Walt and Roy? And he says, the Disneys were terrible business partners. Disneyland had become enormously successful, but Walt kept plowing the profits back into park expansion. I feared it would be a very long time before ABC started to see any return on our original investment on the project. Now, you have to understand that ABC has two hit television series on the back of this $5 million investment. We've got the Walt Disney's Disneyland and the Mickey Mouse Club Kitty Show. They're also making money hand over fist because they got, as part of this deal, the fast food concessions in the park. But at the same time, Walt keeps taking, almost from day one, he's taking the money that he's making, you know, with ticket sales and and plowing it back into the park. Which brings us to 1957. Walt is now planning his most ambitious expansion of the park to date. This is when the Matterhorn, bobsleds, the submarine voyage, and the monorail uh, would all be added to the park at the exact same time. It was going to cost $6 million, and that's a third, more than a third of what Walt spent to build the park originally back in 55. Okay, but those are those are still there, so money well spent. Walt knew that if you, he ran this by the guys at ABC... Oh, again, they're going to say no. Yeah, or they're at least going to slow it down. They're going to make yeah. it difficult. But he also remembered that as part of the original deal back in 53, he still technically owed ABC a third show. So this is the card he, he chose to play. So it's it's early 57. And he goes for another board meeting, uh, this time with a cowboy hat and a pistol. And it's like, okay, guys, we've all been trying to come up with a follow-up to Davy Crockett. So far, haven't been successful yet. 
which is why I now want to talk to you about revisiting that Zorro idea that I, I brought to you in 53. When, you know, everybody assumes that when Walt sends Roy out to New York and he mm-hmm. talks to ABC, you know, NBC, CBS, uh, even the Dumont Network, pitching a Disney-produced television series. And everyone assumes, okay, so it was the anthology show. It's like, no. The very first thing that Walt walked out there was a TV version of Zorro. He'd actually bought the television rights to the 65 Zorro books and stories that Johnson McCulley had written. He created the character back in 1919, signed the deal on February 2nd, 1953. And and this was what he wanted to initially do. So Zorro only dates back to the early part of the 20th century. I I wasn't sure when the character was initially created. 1919. So it's not like a, you know, 1860s sort of comic book pulp fiction character. The first story comes out in 1919, and then Douglas Fairbanks Sr. makes a silent movie version of Zorro. That's a huge hit. And so it's uh, one of these things, okay, okay. and that sends, you know, that sort of launches the series and gets the public interested in the books and further films and that sort of thing. What year did uh, Fairbanks make the movie? That was 1920. And oh, then so right got- after it started. Well, that's the thing. I mean, just, wow. it, it, you know, bad. the studios, even back then, were, were constantly looking for, for strong properties that turn into films. And here's hmm. this short story. And it's like, that's great. Let's, let's get this to the Fairbanks. We need to talk here about why all of those executives in New York said no to Zorro. And this actually ties back to 1950, when Lucille Ball is developing an idea of doing a sitcom based on her marriage to Desi Arnaz. Mm-hmm. So they take it to CBS, and CBS initially says no because they're like, TV viewers just aren't going to embrace a show that has like an all-American girl like like Lucy married to a foreigner like Desi. And it was just in order to convince the CB executives that they were wrong, Ball and Arnez actually go on tour in the fall of 1950 and perform to sold-out houses with an act that clearly gets across Lucy and Desi, her husband and wife. Even with that, you know, the, the receipts from the you know, sold-out tour, CBS still insists that Ball and Arnez shoot a pilot episode of a show that, that eventually becomes I Love Lucy. And this finally persuades network executives who are still kind of queasy about, you know, the whole all-American girl married to a hot-blooded Cuban thing. But they sign off on the show. They shoot the pilot in March of 51. Everyone likes what they see. CBS greenlights the production. And the very first episode of I Love Lucy airs on CBS in October of 51. And the rest is television history. Amazing. Now, we jump ahead to 53. And what Walt and Roy are discovering that is that when it comes to television series that feature Hispanic characters, network executives is still queasy. So, which is why they tell Walt that if we were even going to consider a Zorro television series, you're going to have to shoot a pilot. It's <laughs> like, so, so, wait a minute. You know, look, look Walt, what do, you, what do you know about entertainment? <laughs> yeah. Or, or more to the point, he's like, no, wait a minute. Okay, so we got the 1920s Douglas Fairbanks senior silent version. We've got the 1940s remake with Tyrone Power. Both were huge box office hits. In between, there have been five different Zorro serials that have run from 1937 to 1949. Are these uh, these movie serials? Like, how do they... Remember how when you used to go to the movies, it was a double feature and there'd be a cartoon oh, and then it, a serial? Okay, okay. So, yeah, a 10 or 12 episodes, you know, things of Zorro 
Zorro rides again, or Zorro's Black Whip, or, or Son of Zorro. Got it. And, and Walt's like, look, there's enough proof out there that Zorro's a popular character, and that this will work for television. So he digs into Seals, and he says, no, no pilot. But at the same time, he still needs his money for Disneyland. And so Roy's like, okay, they're not going for the Zorro idea. Let's go with plan B. And plan B in this situation is we do the Lily White Disney show where Walt is the host and and we open up the fabled Disney film vaults and but this still sticks in Walt's craw because you know he's a at this point he's lived for three decades in Los Angeles yeah he's the guy in 41 who is the goodwill ambassador went to Latin America and, and loved the culture that he saw and that's what's led to Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros and the fact that these guys with suits and ties back in New York are like oh, I don't know you know I don't think America's ready for Hispanic hero. <laughs> so that's 53. We get the Disneyland show goes, you know, in 54. It's now, we're now back to early 57. And Walt needs these ABC executives to get on board with this proposed extension of Disneyland Park. Again, Matterhorn, Monorail, subs, all in one fell swoop. So Walt goes into the meeting and pitches Zorro this way. We take every lesson we learned from Baby Crockett and we apply it to the Zorro TV show. We're going to start with a theme song that's written by George Brenz, the very same guy who wrote The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Also, those Davy Crockett episodes, the, the ones we did for the first season of the Disneyland show, really expensive. You remember, Len, we talked about how they basically used half of the, that year's budget for the entire Disneyland TV show to film these three episodes. Yeah, $250,000 an episode, which in 1950s money is, is a lot. No, absolutely. But that was because we shot on location. So we're not going to shoot on location. We'll shoot on the Disney back lot. You know, we'll shoot on our sound stages. Part of the cost was, was you know, we shot in color. So we'll do these in black and white. And those were hour-long episodes. We'll do these in half hour. Yeah. And so ABC, he feels like, okay, he's meeting us halfway here. He's, he's making an effort to keep the cost down. Yeah. But at the same time, it's still, it's a Hispanic hero. So it's like, all right, tell you what, we'll agree if you get the right actor for this role. So immediately after he gets this sort of blinking green light, Walt begins testing actors. And more than 20 actors test for the part, including Hugh O'Brien, Dennis Weaver, and David Jensen. You know, really? Of Harry O fame, yeah. But then April 18th, 1957, a relatively unknown actor called Guy Williams tests for the part. Walt sees the results of the test and it's like, I found my Zorro. What certainly doesn't hurt here is that Guy Williams, whose original name, by the way, Len, is Armand Joseph Catalano. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Catalano translates to Williams. <laughs> there we go. But I would say, so he has Sicilian parents. So he has good, strong, you know, Sicily, Spain, close enough. Ethnic I mean, we're, we're within a few hundred miles there. It's close. There we go. <laughs> All right. And it's, it's classic good looks. He's six foot three inches tall. The best part is he's already an accomplished fencer. So it's Ooh. like he, he, he can hit the ground running. So this is April of 1957. By October 10th of that same year, Guy Williams has gone from screen testing to he's now on the air. He's Zorro. Zorro. Yep. And, wow. it, and Zorro's a hit out of the box, which thrills Guy Williams. Really? Yeah. Well, the funny part is that as he tell, told the story back then, he was about a week away from getting out of show business at that point. In fact, he was thinking about, well, I'll go back to Wanamaker's and get my old job selling luggage. <laughs> Let me so, just let me just give this Disney thing a shot and see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, suddenly he's the hit star of a, a hit television series. He's he's making twenty five hundred dollars a week 
at Disney Studios. Not to mention thousands more when he makes personal appearances, whenever he dresses up in the character of Zorro. And let's not forget that the money that he makes off of the sales of any Walt Disney Zorro merchandise. That oh, so Disney gave legs. him the same deal that he gave the Davy Crockett. I mean, you're making the show that's supposed to replace Davy Crockett. At the very least, the guy who's going to be taking the front position should get the Fess Parker deal. So anyway, for this one brief window of time, Len, everyone is happy. The executives of ABC are happy. They now finally have a hit show that can serve as a replacement for Davy Crockett, one that's being produced on the Disney lot in a deliberately affordable way that the Crockett shows weren't. Walt is happy, too, because he can now reinvest in Disneyland, spending that $6 million to build the Matterhorn, the monorail, and the subs without worrying about the ABC executives cramping his style, making it more difficult to, to get the money to expand the park. And, of course, Kai Williams is happy in April of 58 when he and the cast of Disney's Zorro trek down Anaheim for the first ever Zorro days at Disneyland. Because that means he's going to get an especially big check from the studio the following week. Wow. Now, we'll talk about what happened as part of the very first <laughs> I'm, Zorro I'm days. I'm sensing just because of the way you're saying this that it didn't go especially well, but we'll have to see on the next episode, right? <laughs> they did some pretty amazing things. They actually had sword fights on top of the rooftops oh. of Frontierland, and not to mention parades, and thousands of kids came out for this thing. But we'll talk about that, right. as well as the fact that ABC and Disney's squabbles over this hit television series resulted in these two huge corporations winding up in court just as the Matterhorn, the Subs, and the Monorail are opening at that, that family fun park in June of 59. But we'll do that in the next show. That's a cliffhanger, Jim, in the, uh, in the best tradition of, uh, of uh, serial TV uh, series. We all too often, because this is what Disney does, we we get the nice, polished Walt, the, the grandfatherly yeah. Walt. And what I love about this is, you know, you very, very rarely get the sweaty, desperate Walt. <laughs> sweaty, desperate Walt. Oh, I have my Halloween costume idea this year. <laughs> there you go. I mean, the, the guy who's just at this point, I'm just trying to make these idiots at ABC happy. And eventually he decides, I don't want to do that anymore. All right. So we'll see how this uh, this goes next week. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including our complete Joseph Mankiewicz series on ideas Disney had for Epcot way back in the 1970s. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. On next week's show, we'll finish the Zorro story, and we'll have a guest interview who talks about the Disney Comeback Index. If you're familiar with the Waffle House Index, it's like that but for Disney World. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. We'll be discussing the philosophical similarities between Don Carter's 10 Secrets of Bowling and the Dead Milkman song Punk Rock Girl as the opening act for Street Late Manifesto at the 22nd Annual Punk Rock Bowling Festival on Saturday, September 25th, 2021 at the Downtown Las Vegas Events Center in beautiful downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.